The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. We'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bible, please turn with us. What a sweet time of worship. I didn't want it to end. (laughs) It felt like the Lord truly inhabits the praises of his people. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading from the NIV. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make uh, plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Amen. God bless the reading of the word. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Um, I'm just really grateful um, that you guys uh, are here tonight. Some of you, I think I've seen every night. Um, some of you might be your first time, but just really thankful. Let me, um, let me bring us up to speed. Um, we've covered so much, and there's so much to review. So let's, let me review Acts 19 this way. Um, Paul did an incredible thing when he walked into Ephesus and found 12 people willing to be taught. So he poured a mass amount of discipleship into them, and they in turn became disciple makers themselves. Before long, the testimony by the end of Acts 19 is that everybody in the region had heard about the Jesus that they were discipled in. And so there was an incredible amount of teaching that was being poured into them, and they didn't spend time chasing around all the antagonists. And trying to spend time with people that didn't want to hear. They started with the people that wanted to hear. And then they had really good theology. They had a theology that they were sealed in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they learned about the power of the Holy Spirit. And it manifests itself in great ways. But even when a riot broke out, they were accused. They, um, accusations were coming. They were wanting to, obviously the rioting crowd probably wanted them to be killed. But the mayor, the the town clerk, stepped forward and he's like, look, there's no accusations that stick against these people. They haven't robbed us. They haven't spoken bad about our gods. Um, So 
if there's a problem, take them to court. But if you're claiming that they've blasphemed us or they've harmed us in any way, these people have great integrity. And so now we find ourselves in an era where Paul is writing this letter, most likely now through the letter, uh, through the book of Acts and Acts chapter 28. Nearly probably 20 or 30 years later, as an older man chained to a prison guard, he's writing them a letter because, as we talked about, it's easy in the early years. It's all exciting when everybody's excited that something new is going on. But you get a couple of decades in the church life. It's easy for everybody to fall into ruts. It's easy that people get divisive and lack of unity. Theology can go astray and all these things. And so Paul had a great love for them. He wanted to write them this letter. That could serve as a way of shaping their theology, reminding them of things they know to be true, but also helping those that were new to be taught. You know, we can't make the assumption that just because people come to church, they automatically know everything that they should know. And so he was helping them say, look, we need to go through what is a powerful review. And he started with the word grace, which we talked about as God's unmerited favor. And then we talked about how God lavishes us. It's in Christ that we get all of the blessings of Israel. That's what I want you to understand is we talked about this last night is that every promise that God gave to Abraham about prosperity and the world being theirs and all the things that were going to come for them as milk and honey flowing, so to speak, all of the Old Testament imagery of the promises and the power of God is now at our disposal because we are now in Christ. And that includes every nationality. We even talked last night briefly as an illustration of the over 120 streams and creeks that flow into the Potomac River. But when they get to the Potomac River, they be called, they're called the Potomac River. They don't keep their name any longer. They have a new identity, right? And so for us, we need to understand that every nation, every tribe, every tongue around the world is flowing towards Christ. And once they get to Christ, we are all new and one in him. And then we become, obviously, just the mighty rushing force. And so there's so much that we've covered over the last few nights. But I want to jump into um, uh, this Ephesians chapter 3. I want to start with uh, another little story that I captured. Um, there's just uh, some things that um, have, like C.S. Lewis is an incredible writer for a lot of people. N.T. Wright has written a lot of things, and I love reading N.T. Wright. And one of the things that I have found is he's written some of these really short stories in a book that's basically um, he wrote a for everyone series on the New Testament. And and occasionally he's written some personal stories in it that have just been powerful. And this one really struck me because a lot of this passage of scripture is about how God has had a plan from all time. That's just now being revealed. Like we, a lot of us think that, oh, the world was so bad. Now he's got to send Jesus. But from the foundation of the world, he's had a plan. And it was for our benefit that he had this plan. That is never a, a, a way of God being like, well, I got to catch up against sin. He's always been ahead of it. And so here's a story that I really thought might help us serve as an entry point to get to some deeper levels of some theology. Starts out with this. It's a, it's a, it's a fictitious story about a lady named Naomi. Naomi had started a small dressmaking business. She had always been skillful with her hands and had a good eye for color and pattern. Now she was she realized she could turn these abilities to good use, not only to make clothes for herself and her family, but to earn some money to supplement the family income. 
The brightly colored fabrics in her part of Africa were popular not only in the surrounding district, but also, she had heard, in other foreign countries as well. Who could tell where this might lead? She employed two local women to help with the actual dressmaking and a young man who had who would travel to the city to buy supplies and to sell finished products. Together, they worked hard and had a measure of success. People looked at what they did and they were and, and they were reliable. Soon they had more orders than they could complete easily. And Naomi hired two more helpers to make sure that they didn't fall behind what the customers wanted. The little group worked happily together until one day one of the younger women said, you know, I wonder if we could make other things as well, like dresses and curtains and covers for chairs and things like that. The others agreed enthusiastically. We're good at making dresses, but we're ready for a new challenge. And Naomi smiled. At last, the moment had come. She went to her desk to the drawer she had always kept locked. She took out a plain sealed envelope which had a date written across the seal and the date was the day that they started the business she passed the envelope to the woman who had asked the question and she says i want you to open it and i want you to read it out loud the young woman opened the envelope took out a single type sheet and she read it out loud and it it contained the plan for a larger business that would make the wonderful fabrics into all sorts of things that people might want in their homes And Naomi said, I've kept this a secret from you all this time. I knew if I told you from the start, you'd say I was daydreaming and then you'd start daydreaming yourselves. And we had to prove that we could make dresses first. But now I've served to share this secret with you. This is what I planned all along. Let's do it. And the young man sitting in the corner and listening to it all suddenly realized that his job was about to change drastically and forever. I believe this is a little bit of Paul's picture um, because I think Paul is emphasized as this young man in Naomi's story. If you're aware, he became illuminated to God's great plan and he was the first one to go to all the nations and really began to do an incredible work. Paul sees, I think we, we many should see ourselves as the image um, of this man and, and suddenly he's been exposed to an extraordinary secret. Could you imagine now? Imagine now the Damascus Road story. Um, when he's walking down it and the bright light comes and he's blinded for three days and then he goes away for three years and is taught. This is what Paul's being taught. He has had an exemplary, um, beyond our wildest imagination exposure to the truth of God. So let me put it back in the terms from those last couple of days. The three years he spent, he had divine revelation through the power of the Holy Spirit. He had wisdom poured out on him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was beginning to actually function with the power of the Holy Spirit because he had been clued in that the God that lavished great love on us had a plan. And that plan included him to go play a part in it. And so all of this is taking place now in Ephesians chapter three. God had seemingly had had a blueprint drawn up, according to Paul's words, for the world from the foundation of it. And now he's letting people in on the secret. Now, can you see why Paul probably had so much joy while he was in prison? Because he knew he was doing his part. Paul was eager and excited. I love the language he shares in verse six to describe just how great our privileges are to which the Gentiles now attain. Like this was new for the Gentiles. Some Jews had already been practicing it for a few decades. 
So it was, some of them were like, oh, why is Paul going over this again? Those Gentiles just need to catch up. But let's just be honest. That was the way men felt about women because men were, men were taught first. And then they're like, why won't these women catch up? I mean, we always have to be willing to say there's people that are lagging behind and we've got to walk with them. We can't just run out and go ahead of other people. There's other people we need to be patient with and walk with slowly so that we can make the disciples that impact a region and everybody can know the name of Christ. But this is what he says in verse six. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together in one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So I think there's three things that he says here that are really important. First, they are to share the inheritance. Um, Imagine hearing that somebody down the street had a fancy house and they had all these lavish cars and you could tell that they never worried about money. But then one day they knock on their door and say to you that they've adopted your family. and Now you're joint heirs to everything that they have. Right. Um, that, that, that their bank account successful to you, their cars are accessible to you, their house is accessible to you. And by the way, they're going to remodel your house to be equivalent to their house. And everything like that goes on. I mean, imagine what it would be like. And this is what Paul's saying to the Gentiles in the first century. Um, everything you think that is Jewish isn't Jewish. This is for everyone. And everybody gets an equal part. Nobody is greater or lesser in this kingdom. It doesn't matter where you're from, what language you speak or what job you have or what economic status you have. He's saying to them, you're you're one in Christ and all of it is for you. So much of um, the situation for the Gentiles, Paul speaks about, you know, he talks to them about God's promise that he's his people, Israel, that they will inherit the world. That's Romans four. And in that promise, he's now saying to the Jews, this promise is now extended to you. He's saying to the Gentiles, the promise is extended to you. And then when God renews the whole creation, he's promising that Jesus will be king and Lord over it. And now the Gentiles are going to share in that because God says that the promise for Israel was that they would be joint rulers with him over the world. And so now the Gentiles are like, wait a minute, I just don't get to get in. I get a management job like i get a job where i have responsibility i'm valued like i actually get to do something that's that's not like just go do this like there's no slavery in heaven there's nobody working for a master other than the lord jesus christ and he's no master than anything the earth has ever known right and so the second thing that we find in this is that they they are to become fellow members of one body um I, i i think paul here is 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 seeking a little bit of redundancy because imagine how shocking it would have been for people to hear this for the first time. I mean, for us, a lot of us have heard it a lot. And some of us, the the newness of this conversation is, is that we're grafted into Israel's stream, right? That we, that we're a part of a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That might be new to us in our time of Christianity, but to the Gentiles, they knew of Israel. They knew of Israel's God. They knew of Israel's history, and they knew a lot of the things that were written in and about them. And now Paul is redundantly saying over and over again um, that they are in the same body. And he's emphasizing what I think is in Ephesians one twenty three. But Gentile Christians are simply not the second class citizens. They are as much organs and limbs in the body of Christ as you and I are. Third, I think he's saying in this passage of scripture here, specifically in verse six, is they are to have equal share in the promises. All God's people have the same worldwide promises. And one day we're going to get to walk in it.
But here's Paul. He, he, he flips back and forth in this passage between what he's saying to them and what he's saying about himself. And one of the things here he's saying about himself is, I was chosen to be God's pioneer. Um, and, and which makes me think a little bit for all of your sake, is what would it look like for us to say God has a chosen path for me? Like there is this plurality of the body, like we're one body, many parts. But what is the specific ask of God for you as a part of this body? Like, could some of us be um, in some ways a God anointing us to do something that would have the impact like a Paul? Um, now, I don't think we all need to compare ourselves to Paul's story because that's a different thing. And I don't think we all need to aspire to that. But I think we all need to say, Lord, what do you want me to do with no limitations? Don't put a limit on it. Say, God, well, I will do anything you want as long as I get to do this. Right. We don't want to have any type of definition on this. And I think there's a part of this, if we read it, where you can hear that Paul's actually excited about the job he's been given. But let's remember, he's actually chained up while he's writing this letter. And you can hear in this tone that he's talking about, I was clued into God's secret plan. And now I got to tell everybody else about it. There wasn't a sense of begrudging, like, man, I got to deliver this message and I'm chained up to this guard who's really smelly and nasty. And, and now I got to write a letter to you rather than visit you. No, he took it that that's that he was there. We're going to talk a little bit more about him saying at the very end for their glory. But he had a chance to write this letter that was circulating around the churches in Ephesus. And remember, it's decades later. So now there's more and likely more than one church meeting in Ephesus. There's more than one group of churches in that region because more likely it had spread and grown. And so there could be believers gathering to worship God in these places that never met Paul, that never heard his teaching in the hall of Tyrrhenius, never saw the riots, never because over a 20, 30 year plan, you have children, you have children that grow up. Those children are having children. And so Paul is coming to them and sharing and reminding those that were with him and those that are new of who he really was, what he's experienced so that they can continue to trust him and begin to follow after him. And so, so much of this is Paul constantly reminding them of his story because he also is setting a great example for us that we need to use our story to tell other people about Christ. But uh, verse one, you know, um, he may be in jail, but the vision isn't stopped. Like while he's sitting there, it's like the Holy Spirit has opened up his mind so he can see the wide in the spans of the horizon of the church. And so even though he's in a dark, dreary dungeon, his eyes are seeing the impact of the church. On the world. And I think it's important for you and I to understand that God can meet us there. And I think He wants us to read this letter with a sense of, yes, and now I get, you know, in, in this sense of enthusiasm that's happening. And so then the, the, the letter here starts to transition a little bit. It's not as much about Paul and the whole concept of um, him trying to share his story and share his enlightenment of, man, I get to do this for the sake of God. He starts to transition it more to what everything is happening together. And so let me let me read this other story to you um, about a, a young king. It says there was once a young prince whose distant uncle was the king of a great empire. The prince was carefree and happy, neither rich or very, not very poor. But one day a great disaster struck the nation. The king, who was his uncle, was killed in an earthquake and all the senior members of the royal family died with him. 
the prince was solemnly informed that he now was to be king. The prince remembered the stories that he had heard of the young kings in the days gone by. He knew at once what needed what he needed most, which was wisdom. Like King Solomon, David's son and heir, he needed to know instinctively the best way to resolve a difficult situation. He needed to be able to see to the heart of the deepest and most subtle issues, the big picture and the little details, the well-pondered great questions and all of the other intricate judgments that he would need to make. That's what wisdom is all about. And he determined to seek it, to make it his own. I believe Paul is is giving us a glimpse in this passage of how you and I should be passionate about seeking wisdom. And so when we begin to look at the verses here, this is what some theologians are tying to some other books that were popular in the first century that are called the Apocrypha that is not included in our scripture. Um, There's actually a book in there called The Wisdom of Solomon. And Paul references it many times throughout his letters, but there are a lot of times subtleties. But this particular time is one of the um, verse 10 areas, one of the most uh, common references that Paul makes to it. But this Apocrypha, this this extra book was one of the main themes of this whole um, pagan message. It was like Jewish people writing towards pagans and they were letting them know that what they needed was wisdom. And the place to get it was obviously from Israel and the law. But what we began to find here is that the task around Paul was that we were supposed to be worshiping and honoring God. And part of us doing that is our desire so richly to seek wisdom. Like we can't just want to attend. There's got to be a yearning and a longing in us that when tomorrow comes and circumstances come my way, I'm prepared. When I need to know what to do when there's conflict, I need to know what to do. Like, like part of me training my kids to, to drive is to teach them where the spare tire is and how to take off a lug nut and how to check windshield washer fluid. I mean, how to scrape a window on a snowy day. I mean, for a lot, for a lot of our, us, when we learn to drive, somebody had to show us how to do that. Um, so where did, where do I get to do that? I get to share my wisdom, but for many of us as Christians, we don't really pray for wisdom. Um, often we want God to show us what we need to, our desire of our heart needs to be God. Show me what I need to be prepared for, for tomorrow so that I can discern what's right and wrong. What's good. What's what, how do I avoid a problem and how do I diffuse one? In verse 10, he actually says this. This intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. But I think this is something that's really important to point out in the word choices that Paul uses here. He doesn't want this to come through the church just by what the church says. I believe that's vital that we have the right words, but I think what Paul is getting at here with his overemphasis on Gentile inclusion and being brought into the Jewish family, now being one as a new family in Christ, that he's saying that what the church should be doing that's going viral around the world is creating a new community where men, women, children of every race, color, social and cultural background, economic come together to worship God as the one true God. 
And so this wisdom that he's striving for should be pressing against the current rulers and the authorities that we don't see that are pressing against us because we are establishing a community of believers that, yes, know what to say, but yes, know how to act, how to treat one another and how to include one another and not be intimidated by one another and are willing to say, let me get to understand where you're from, what you've come from. And the only way that we correct one another is when we lose the image of Christ in us. We've got to get over the fact of, of judging one another based on personal preferences. We've got to hold true to what Jesus has taught us and what's true about Christ. I believe that Paul, in many ways, is talking about this very many-sided, many-colored, many-splendor image of the church. And God's wisdom, I think Paul is saying, has a lot of different facets to it. And it can't just be, uh, let me go study wisdom for a weekend and then I'm ready for life. We've got to diligently make it a pattern in our life to seek God's wisdom. I think it's interesting that he calls out the rulers and authorities, and he's going to spend more and more time on this as we go through the book. But um, both earthly authorities and these mysterious supernatural authorities that we talked about, like every, every, every city, I think, has different spirits that try to control the flow of the city. And ever since the riots of Martin Luther King Jr., that after he was assassinated here in the city, the city spiraled down. That's why there's abandoned homes everywhere. There's so many things that took on because a spirit that wasn't of this world came in and started to deceive people. And Baltimore started a rapid decline nearly 50 years ago here. Actually, it's over 50 years ago. Um, and in all of that, I believe that God's saying to the church, you need to stand against those authorities. But these authorities, some earthly, there's always Hitler's, right? There's always neo-Nazis and other people that want to go against and hate other people. There's always those people. There's always murderers and people that are, um, um, out for greed and to hold people down and to run people away so they can make money. There's always that type of people. But the worst that we tend to do is that we tend to marginalize and kill people, sometimes emotionally and spiritually, by the way, the church acts towards them. And the church is to be the very existence of a image of God to the people around them so that they feel lavished in God's love. So what did Paul mean by the king's wealth? I think he's referring to the riches of this new life. And now this is the part that I think is almost equally as hard for us to understand as us being sinners. A lot of us still struggle, like in the Luke 7 passage, the woman that cried and wept tears enough to wet Jesus' feet enough that she could clean his feet with her tears and then Jesus gave the example of the 500 versus 50 owed to one man and he forgave both. Who's going to love him more? I believe that most of us in our church family, when it comes to God forgiving us of our sins, feel like we only owed God a dollar. And so his great sacrifice for us wasn't that great of a sacrifice because I'm really good and I, I really only owe him a dollar. But in actuality, we had a debt that was beyond our wildest imagination, and he paid it off for us. And so this richness of new life is the fact that he didn't obviously pay off our debt. He filled up our bank account. 
so that we could daily not just wait for an eternal reward, but we could have a renewed self. Now, some prosperity gospel pastors would, would always associate any type of benefit to us as monetary. And I don't think that is necessarily true because I know people that don't make a whole lot of money that have the joy of the Lord. They're generous. They're compassionate. They're kind. They're content. They're, they're, they're seeking others there. And, and I think that the danger is, is that the only way God blesses me is by adding a zero or a comma to my bank account. Right. And that's not the way that I think that it works. This richness is the new life, the new way of being human in this world right now through Christ that is together pushing the world towards the hope that he's promised. And when we feel like we're a part of God's great plan and we feel like we are walking in a new life, experiencing new community and new relationships with people, then you will feel enriched. You will feel rich. You will feel as if God has done something good through you. And it's not just whether or not you can afford to travel the world or cruise, cruise the world for a year or whatever it is that might be a whim or desire that's in your heart. But it is that I am participating in God's kingdom right now and I feel alive. And that's part of going back to the power of the Holy Spirit we talked about a couple of nights ago, is that when you sit in the reality that I can have a rich life in Christ, it's like the Holy Spirit is calling us over to this massive telescope I was talking about, where we can look into it and be like, whoa, I look at a rich life and I see this. But when I, th- when I look at a rich life through the power of the Holy Spirit, I see so much more. This phrase will sound strange to many, um, to Christians and to non-Christians, but I'm assuming everybody here tonight is a Christian. But I also think that some of us have forgotten, or some of us may have not ever known this. Um, but what can appear from the outside as a tedious and humdrum religious existence? And I want to I define it, because we could have had that this morning, but we didn't. If you were here this morning, it wasn't a humdrum religious experience. But going to church for many is humdrum. Praying prayers at church is just humdrum. Monotonous or just trite. Singing can be humdrum or trite. Sharing a meal with others can be humdrum or trite. Trying to be holy, waste of time. But I believe that God wants us to experience unexpressed, unexpressible, uncomprehendable richness when we come together. So every time we're together, like the worship we had before tonight, even though there's a smaller group that was here, then here this morning, the, the, the richness of that was powerful. So it doesn't matter the quantity of people. It was the quality of our awareness that God loves us. Being a Christian is meant to consist of going from room to room in the king's palace and being like, wow, this is mine. I don't know if you've ever been in some place super nice. Um, but sometimes you just find yourself walking around like, oh, my. Wow, I get to stay here. You know, but now imagine the nicest house in the, on the earth that you could think of and walking through it room for room. 
for the whole day, touching the beds, touching the walls, going through the kitchen, opening up the refrigerator and being like, whoa, it's stocked and closing it and looking again and like, wow, it's stocked with everything I like and closing it and going back out to the backyard and touching lush grass and flowers. And if you like dogs or cats, they could be around, um, you know, and so in just imagining that one day you wake up and you realize that this is mine. And this is what Paul is telling these Jews and these Gentiles that were coming together in a coexistent life was that you don't just wait for Jesus to come back. When we experience community, even under the person, we're not even mentioning the persecution the church was under in that first century. The number of family members they had seen crucified along the roads. And that we're not even touching all that persecution. But what we're saying is that they were gathering home to home and they were experiencing a richness and a joy and a celebration that was beyond their wildest imaginations. He obviously took it as his full on vocation to make sure people understood they could have spiritual joy and hope in Christ. But verse 12, in him and through him. We approach God with freedom and confidence. This is what he's saying to them now, is that we can approach God with freedom and confidence. And he's using this, I think, as a central treasure given in the Messiah as a way of of talking to that early church about not just letting other people talk to God, but them doing it themselves. The Messiah's faithfulness to God's saving purpose has opened a door of the heavenly throne room to everybody. But I I think, again, we can amen that and we can talk about this. But when you pray, do you think that you're getting a chance to step into the throne room? Like when you pray, do you think you're trying to yell to heaven? Like in the mind, we always point up for heaven, but actually heaven is like a veil and that we just pull it back and you see it. And, you you know, John's baptism or Jesus's baptism. So it's not like it's way out somewhere in Star Wars. It's somewhere here where it's just on the other side of some veil and we just can't see it yet, right? So when we pray, the veil is so thin that we're right in the throne room, right? And so we're not away away from this promise. The promise is close, but there's a veil that's kind of keeping it concealed right now. But one day that veil is going to be pulled back when Jesus comes back and everybody's going to be like, wow, right? But when we pray, do we pray like as if the veil is temporarily open for us? Do we talk to the father that has the power to speak life, to speak love, to speak, to heal, to mend and believe that we're actually talking to him in that place? This door that opens doesn't reveal an angry God. This door doesn't reveal a God that judges them harshly. And I think Paul alludes to this in this letter because who were the Gentile worshipers sitting in the room? They used to worship other gods. And many of those other gods had extreme punishments that were known in their religions that if you don't do these things, these bad things will happen to you or their God will judge you or curse your family and all this kind of stuff. And Paul is saying, whoa, 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 the one true God. That we enter through the gate, which is Jesus Christ. He is not like that at all. Matter of fact, he loves us on our worst days. And he loves us on our best days. And matter of fact, you have a direct line to talk to him right now. So why don't you do it? We have access to him. And everyone can access him. 
In Ephesians 3.13, he goes on to say, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which you which are your which are your glory. I think Paul is talking about this. I think it's interesting. What does Paul mean in describing his suffering as their glory? And so here's my best attempt for this. The answer, I think, is he's suffering precisely because he is pioneering a way of life that changes the sovereignty of the rulers and the authorities that had control over them. And so he is suffering because he's been speaking against earthly rulers and spiritual rulers that have had a hold over people. And because he's the tip of the spear, he suffers. Right. And the fact that he's in prison writing to them right now is a proof that he still has a great amount of love and joy, even though he's suffering for somebody else. But the joy in the glory of it is, is that he knows that they're living in the new kingdom. It's for their glory. They're getting access. They're hearing a message of hope. They're hearing truth about Christ. He's being able to speak down against all the lies that they've been taught all along. So here's a couple of questions tonight as we end this particular portion of Ephesians 3. The question this passage poses to me, I think, is twofold. The first one is, are we learning to explore the riches of Christ? I mean, that might be something to put in your journal. Like, have you taken time to think about what we have access to and the riches in Christ? Or are we content to just stay and gaze? Like to explore, like it'd be like coming to church, but literally just walk in the hallway out there. And not stepping in and experiencing the life of the worship we just experienced together. Like, you know that that's going on, but oh, that's not for me. No, go in. Experience it. Let it wash over you. Are we learning to explore the riches of Christ? And second, have we imagined that the inner rooms are too, are, have we had an imagination that makes us think that God's ways, that God's blessings are too boring for us? That they're really not well thought out? Are we, do we actually take time to think that, well, God's plan is best for me? Is, is my life in Him supposed to feel this way? Or is there something else? Is, do we have a wrong set of thinking about how we're thinking about entering into the intimacy of Christ? I believe Paul is trying to get them to to understand that their right thinking and their right living is going to enrich not only them, but the whole community, not only the whole community, but the whole region where they are. So the question for us as a church is this, is our church in the sort of life ours is leading? So we evaluate what we're currently doing. Is it posing any kind of challenge to the power of evil, which provokes a reaction? Paul was in prison because he challenged the powers of evil and it imprisoned him, caused riots, all these other things. But is our faith in our theology about God in the way we live, are we bumping up against spiritual forces? And let me tell you this. The answer to that is absolutely yes. We have been under some incredible spiritual attack as a church family. Some of you are unaware and I'm glad you're unaware. Um, but I can tell you firsthand because in some ways I'm sort of like the tip of the spear for us 
and I feel it first, but then many times you guys feel it along the way, um, especially if I don't take that first hit very well. But there have been some spiritual attacks against us. So you know what it tells me is we're heading in the right direction. Right? We're no, we're no, we haven't fully accomplished all that God wants for us to, to accomplish here yet. But I don't see God up there saying, man, I really wish that gallery church would get their act together. I think God is saying, Holy Spirit or Jesus. Because remember, the, the actual picture of what's happening right now is the Father is seated and Jesus is seated at the right hand. And daily they're talking to each other about us. And then Jesus, based upon that conversation, gives a command to the spirit to come and reveal something to us or give wisdom to us or give power to us so that we can do the obedient thing that God's asked us to do. That's what's happening in the throne room when we join in. And so I believe that God is saying to Jesus and Jesus is saying to the father, I can identify with them. And he's now equipping us and maturing us. But he's saying, father, they're really getting it. And I want us tonight to think about other people around us that we have influence over and invite them in to this maturity. Invite them in to all that God wants for us. So tonight, what kind of riches in Christ do we need to explore together? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this time that we've set aside to just walk through this letter to the church in Ephesus. And Father, we want to be a church that fights against the rulers and the powers and the authority, whether physically in flesh or in the spirit, that are are keeping people in bondage and slavery. And so, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would strengthen us. But Father, my prayer tonight is, is we haven't gotten to the place in the letter yet that talks about how we fight against those spiritual authorities. And so, Lord, would you watch over our people until we get to that passage Tuesday night and that we would walk faithfully with you, but yet we wouldn't go anywhere until we learn how to be spiritually prepared for a fight. And so, Lord, um, would you keep the enemy at bay? Would you keep his acute, the accuser away? Would you keep the enemy far from us so that we have a chance to armor up? And so, Lord, would you strengthen us tonight? Father, let us taste the riches that we have accessed in Jesus Christ that are accessible to us through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for the joy of worship that blessed my soul. Father, I thank you for... Um, the words that were spoken out loud about who you are and what truth there is in you. And so, Lord, would you take this message tonight and drive it deep into our hearts so that we are capable of sharing it with other people. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's Christ's name we pray. Amen.